0: everybody if you're watching me on video this morning that means my wife is in labor and about to have a baby or maybe we just had a baby who knows but we cover your prayers and i've never changed a diaper so i need prayers um and and so i'm coming to you from earlier in the week we thought we'd film it just in case this happened um and, and we're starting a sermon series today on intimacy and on the screen in front of me, you're going to see um, some different wording that, that represents different levels of intimacy. And intimacy is closeness, right? And so kind of on the negative side of intimacy or, or the, the, the low side of intimacy would be the word infatuation. When you're infatuated with somebody or something, you have a high passion for that person or that thing. But it's a quick burn and it, it, it's kind of shallow. Another word for infatuation could be lust. And it can feel like a really strong form of intimacy, but it's, it's not. And then a, a little bit farther in on intimacy, a deeper level of intimacy is admiration. And we can admire a lot of things. You could admire uh, people, you could admire things. You could admire your boss's work ethic. You could admire how somebody has patience for their kids or how somebody is disciplined to work out. You could admire a lot of things. That doesn't mean you're necessarily uh, going to implement that. That doesn't mean you yourself are gonna work out or be patient with your kids or whatever, but you admire it, right? Um, and, And the list of what we could admire could be pretty big. You could admire the bangles, right? You could admire a lot of different things. And on the really far side, of intimacy is adoration. And adoration is like the height of intimacy. This should be a super short list of the things that we adore. Um, On Merriam-Webster's dictionary, it defines adoration as to worship or honor as deity or divine. So this definition basically makes it sound like adoration is almost idolization, like you so adore these things. When, When you adore something or someone, Everything else kind of fades into the background when you walk into the room and that person or that thing is there. And and you're willing to spend all sorts of money and all sorts of time because you adore this person or this thing. And uh, when we adore something, we, we prioritize that thing over other things in our life. We make our life about what we adore. And in an ideal world, in a perfect scenario, we should adore God, and we should adore the closest people to us, the people that we love, the closest people to us. And here's the problem, and maybe you saw this coming, but it is so easy to get all of these things flipped around, right? It's so easy uh, for me to adore things that I should simply admire, or maybe even less than that. Like some of you, some of you sports fans, maybe you adore the Reds or you adore the Bengals. You have kind of an overemphasis on how much you love those things and you prioritize life around those things. I know for me, uh, one thing that I can have trouble adoring, and I've mentioned this before, um, I want to have a life lived of radical generosity, where I'm the hands and feet of Jesus, where I'm serving Jesus with my time, my talent, my treasures. I want to live a generous life. But the problem is this, is I adore financial security and comfort. And and those things kind of clash with one another. If I want to um, adore radical generosity, I have to put aside, my comfort and my desire for security. And and so the warning for us today is what is it that we're adoring? Because whatever we adore is going to be our primary motivator. It's going to be what influences us and what directs us. Adoration is like the rudder of a ship. It, it, It steers us in a certain direction. And we're in a new sermon series today called Union. And In our Bible reading plan, at the end of this month, we're going to start reading a new book in the Old Testament called Song of Songs. Some of you might know it as Song of Solomon. And this book is about two lovers who are pursuing one another to the highest level of intimacy. And as we read this book, it's going to ask the question of us. It's going to point a mirror back at us, asking the question, what are the things that I adore? And what are the things that I need to reprioritize in my life? And to be honest, when we were in our staff content meeting and we were deciding future sermon series, we try to plan out our sermon series like a year in advance. It it usually partners with the scripture reading plan. And when somebody brought up the idea of doing the book Song of Songs, I was like, hard pass. I don't want, I, I was like, that's a big no from Cody. Just in my heart of hearts, I was thinking I super don't want to do that book but there were some people in that room that were really excited about it and they came up with a really good sermon series but but there's a couple reasons why i wasn't excited about doing this book and i'm petty so i made a list and so <laughs> here's a list of why i didn't originally want to do this book first off song of songs is a book of poetry and it's primarily like semi-erotic love poetry that, that, that's the kind of poetry between this, this guy and this girl that they're speaking to one another. And for the most part, this book isn't linear at all. It kind of goes in and out of conversation. And uh, th- there's not a lot of like hard conclusions or actionable steps in this book. It's not like reading the book of Romans or something. Uh, and in this book, it's not like an intellectual feast, but it's more of they're asking you to use your emotions, right? So that's kind of the first reason why I was like, I don't really want to do this book. I'm not about this book. But the main reason why I had hesitancy of doing this book, Song of Songs, is because I've just seen some theologians and scholars and commentators and even churches swing really too far one way or the other on how they present and how they interpret this book. So first off, I've seen some people or some commentators, they try to make the book Song of Songs all about God, and they, they take sexual intimacy out of it completely. And it's almost silly, because some of the imagery in here, in this book, semi-erotic, they try to make it all about Christ and the church, and that's just not the case. That's too much of an overcorrection. And then I've seen other people interpret this book on the opposite side of things, where they take God completely out of the equation, and they make this book all about sexual intimacy, and that's not true either. That's unbalanced. This book absolutely is about God, and it fits into the grand narrative of scripture it, it beautifully balances out it, it all this imagery from genesis and from the temple and from all these places song of songs fits so well with the grand narrative of scripture so it's both of these things it, it is about sexual intimacy and it is about the grand narrative of Scripture and how God is pursuing us and loving us. And so we need to encounter this book in both of those ways. And, and obviously, this book is in the Bible for a reason, so we don't want to shy away from it. We want to dive into it. And as we go throughout this sermon series, uh, for some people, it's going to bless you and benefit you in a way that it hopefully brings you closer in intimacy with your spouse. And then for others of you, it might challenge you and hopefully bring you closer to God uh, through adoration. We're hoping that it does both of these things in a holy pursuit. Some weeks, as we journey through the sermon series, we're going to focus more on sexual intimacy, and when we do that, we're always going to kind of give a warning or a disclaimer ahead of time in case there's people of different ages in the room that shouldn't be in here. Uh, But this week, this first week, is just kind of a high-level overview. We're not going to get into anything super graphic. And, And so before I get into chapter one, I need to go through some disclaimers on this book and really more so than any other sermon series I've ever done uh, to open up with because this topic of sexual intimacy is so weighty and there's so many different feelings and emotions in the room. And so there's a lot of disclaimers I need to make. First off, there's some people in this room, you're in a hard, hard season of marriage and it's not hard to see why. Marriage is primarily meant to symbolize Christ's love and sacrifice for the church, his agape, unconditional love. And we're meant to show that to our spouse. And that's hard and that's weighty because we blow it all the time, right? And and, and so some of you in the room, you're feeling exhausted and you're feeling spent and maybe you're even feeling hopeless and we hope that through this sermon series we could draw closer to God and and by the way we would love to walk alongside you if you're in a tough season of marriage we would love to encourage you and connect you with the right people that can help you with that Uh, another group of people I want to talk to really quick while I'm in my disclaimers are single people Uh, those of you who are single you might think why on earth would I want to sit through like a couple weeks long of a sermon series on sexual intimacy. And, and that's, that's valid. Um, but, but we hope that this sermon series not only highlights what men or women of character look like, so that if you do have a desire to be married, that, that this could point you towards that in the right direction. But, but we also, here's the message we want you to know, for those of you who are single. We want you to know, we want you to hear that you are such a valuable part of the body of Christ. Like you are needed, and you make us as a church better because of your presence here. We're so, so glad you're here. And I don't think we've heard that this here at North Star, but I, I've heard in the Greater Sea uh, Church that, that some singles have expressed that Sunday mornings can feel like the loneliest day of the week. Now, I'm not putting words in your mouth. I'm not saying that's true for you. I know before I met Robin, I kind of felt that, like I would see couples in front of me uh, that were married and they were worshiping together and it just seemed like they had this awesome marriage and I felt just this longing and this desire and I felt loneliness too. And so if that's you, again, we're so thankful you're here and you're pressing in anyways. And, And again, we're better here because of you. We also hope that in the midst of this sermon series that we put marriage in its correct place because something the church has been guilty of in the past is kind of elevating marriage to an unhealthy degree. In some church cultures, they'll kind of, they'll kind of elevate marriage like it's the, the height of our Christian experience and calling in this world is to get married, and that's simply not true. Our calling in this world is to love and pursue Christ and pursue his kingdom. You can do the, that whether you're married, you can do it whether you're single. And what we don't wanna do is deify marriage. Because when we deify marriage, we will demonize our spouse. I'll say that again. We don't wanna we don't wanna deify marriage and end up demonizing our spouse. Because if we have such an such a high view of marriage, then we're gonna end up um, treating our spouse in a harsh way because they're not able to fill or complete us. It, it's bad news for our marriage if we elevate marriage to an unhealthy degree. So we hope that in the midst of the sermon series we put it in its proper place. Another group of people in this room are uh, high school students or, or anyone who's maybe not of age to get married. You might be thinking, why am I in this room? Well, well some things uh, overlap from um, the singles in this room, we we hope that you through this sermon series would be encouraged of what a man or woman of character is, and as you look for a future spouse, that this sermon series would help with that. But we're also thankful that you're in this room because we want to talk about sex in a healthy context. And, and some of us, maybe you've been brought up in a in a shameful purity culture. Uh, where they talk about sex like it's all bad, there's no good stuff about it. And here's the deal, God has made sex and he's given it to us as a gift to be used in the right context of marriage. And so we want to talk about it in a positive light. The last group of people I want to um, send a message to before we dive into the text is anyone in the room, when we start talking about marriage and sexual intimacy, Whenever this language starts to be brought up, some of you in this room might go directly to the shame category. You you might start to feel shame, you might start to feel condemnation, and that's exactly what the enemy would want you to feel. And, And maybe you're in this room, and unfortunately, you've done some stuff that you regret. You've seen some things you regret, or something has happened to you that you had no control over. Maybe you're in this room and you've gone through a divorce or or you've just seen brokenness in some way, shape, or form around marriage or sexual intimacy. And I just, I want to say we're so glad that you're here. And our hope is that in the midst of this sermon series that we would remind you of your positional righteousness in Christ. That in Jesus, when God looks at you, if you've given your life to Jesus, he sees not you, not your past, not even your present, but he sees your future of who Jesus is making you to be. And I love the imagery. Uh, the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthian church, he knew that he was writing to an audience of super sexually broken people. The, the, the Corinthian, uh, the, those who were from Corinth, they gave into a lot of immoral drunkenness and adultery. And in fact, Corinth was so known for sexual debauchery that, that if, if a young boy or a young girl started living that lifestyle, they would say, oh, they've Corinthized." Like, that, that, it was so deeply ingrained in their culture. And so, when Paul writes to this church, filled with sexual brokenness, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that he wants to present us before God, who is our groom. He wants to present us before him as a pure virgin, like, like completely redeemed. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 Paul is listing off all of these habitual sins. He's listing off, you know, if you're, if you're an adulterer or you're a thief or you're whatever it is, he lists off all these things. But here's what he says, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. He says, such were some of you, meaning you used to be those things, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Messiah and in the spirit of our God. This is who We are in Christ. We've been washed clean and made new. And and so those of you in the room who struggle with going to the shame category, I know it's a fight and I know it's hard. It's hard to see yourself as righteous, but friends, take your thoughts captive and remember who Jesus has said you are. Come up and get prayer at the end of the talk. If you need prayer in this area, let's do battle together to remember who we are in Christ as we journey through this sermon series. And with that, with all of that out of the way, let's dive into Song of Songs, chapter 1. Now, chapter 1, verse 1, it starts by saying, Solomon's Song of Songs. And the reason it's called Song of Songs, this is a literary device used in Scripture to denote that this is the best song ever. It's like in Scripture when, when, when you see uh, the, the Holy of Holies, or the King of Kings, And the Lord of Lords. Uh, The author here is saying, This is the song of all songs. This is the best song ever. All right, verse two starts off with the woman speaking to her husband or writing poetry to her husband. And she starts off really strong. Okay, verse two, the woman says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. She's like, I want your face on my face. She is ready to go. Verse three. She says, pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. And she says, no wonder the young women love you. So in, ver- in, in verse three right here, she's complimenting this guy, not only does he smell good, which that would have been hard to do in this culture. You're in the desert, they haven't invented deodorant yet. And she's like, he smells good, that's great, right? So not only does he smell good, but she's also complimenting his character. She said, your name is like perfume poured out like just the best smelling stuff in a room. It would just fill you with the aroma and take you to a better place. She said, that's what your name is like. That's what your reputation is like. So she's complimenting him physically. She's complimenting his, um, his character. And then verse four, the woman says, take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. So she's saying here, I'm ready to go to the bedroom. Take me to the bedroom. And then what happens next might shock us. It kind of shocked me a little bit because things appear to be getting hot and heavy. Take me to the bedroom. And so the rest of verse four, you would expect it to be the woman continuing what she's saying or the, the man responding to this woman. It's neither of those things. Instead, verse four is a response from the friends. And we might be thinking why on earth In this semi-erotic moment, would we hear from the friends? But the the response is from the friends. Verse 4, it says, We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. And so this is kind of a jarring moment, right? Why are the friends in the midst of this intimate moment? Well, for one, this is a rule as old as time. It's a rule that if you want to be her lover, you got to get with her. Friends, right, right? I don't know if that joke landed well on film. I think if I was in person, it would have been awesome. But if you want to be her lover, you got to get with her friends, right? This is a rule as old as time. It's best to date and to do courtship in the midst of community, of friends and family. It's not done well in isolation. And so that could be part of it here. Maybe that's why the friends are here. But but in all reality, the deeper reason why the friends are in the middle of this passionate moment has to do with how the Jewish community courted one another and entered into marriage with one another. And I want to dive into some of that context right now. This is really, really uh, fun. I read this book called Jesus and the Jewish Wedding, written by Tove Rose, and the Bible is filled with all sorts of imagery about how God is the groom, and we as the church are the bride, and, and God is pursuing us, and God is loving us, and God actually follows this imagery that follows the Jewish way that they did their wedding. And so for us to better understand the Bible, we need to understand this background context. And and so there's a lot of great stuff in this book, but the main thing I want to focus on is how in the Jewish wedding, there were the three C's. The three C's were contract, consummation, and celebration. And so, in this culture, sometimes there would be an arranged marriage, and other times the man or the woman was interested in one another. Regardless of, of kind of how it began, uh, the young man would end up at the bride's house to be and talking with the family and talking with the father. And the young man and the bride, they were going to do three things. First off, they were actually going to write out a covenant or a contract. And I believe there were three copies there would be one for the bride's family, one for the groom's family and then one for the new couple. So they would write out their contracts. And then the second thing they would do is drink a cup of wine to seal the contract. And then the third thing they would do, um, the third thing they would do is the husband would pay a bride price to the father of the bride. And and so after these these three things were done, the covenant, the wine, and paying the bride price, the husband-to-be, he would make a speech to his wife. He would tell his wife that he's going to leave her for a long time to go back to his father's house, and he was going to build a bridal chamber for her. And, And before he left, he would tell her, I go to prepare a place for you. And at this point, the couple was as good as married through this contract. And this is actually, if you remember Mary and Joseph, uh, before they consummated the marriage, before they came, to met, came together as one, Mary was pregnant with Jesus. And so this was that point in their marital experience where Jesus uh, was conceived. And so anyways, after this experience at the bride's house, the groom would go off and he would start this building process, building up uh, the bridal chamber. And if anyone w- would come up to uh, the husband-to-be and say, hey, when are you going to get married?, He would say this, he would say, I don't know. Only my father knows the day or the hour of which I'll be married. In this season, this season, my voice cracked, this season uh, of not getting to consummate the marriage yet could last seven years. It could last a really long time. But during this time of waiting, the bride would wait with dignity. And she would wear her veil out in public whenever she went out. That way, another man wouldn't come up and try to initiate a contract with her. This woman, she would call herself set apart. She would call herself consecrated or bought with a price. And in effect, this woman was no longer her own, but she was part of this union with this other man, and she was waiting. And especially as time went on, as time got longer, this woman would wait every single night, in case this would be the night where her husband was to come. And so she would wait with her bridesmaids for this moment. And tradition has it that whenever the groom got the thumbs up from his father, hey, you're, the, the, the bridal chamber is complete, you can go retrieve your bride, uh, the The husband-to-be would take off even if it was at midnight. He would go with his groomsmen over to the bride's house, and, 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 the, and he would show up like a thief in the night and he would try to abduct his bride. It it was was part of this game, and when the groom and his party got close enough that that their spot was given away, they would start to shout and cheer and laugh, and, and they would start to blow horns and trumpets because this was a celebration, and when the bride heard these horns and trumpets and laughter and celebration, she knew that the next phase was as good as here, and she was going to be And the groom would come, and he would get his bride, and he would take her over to his father's house. And at his father's house would be the the, the family and the friends. They would all be there. And this is the part that you and I are probably most familiar with. And what we would expect to happen next, if they paraded the, paraded the bride and the groom in front of the family and the friends, is you would expect them to come up here on stage and hold hands and look into each other's eyes and repeat some vows, right? That's what we would expect. But, but that tradition actually wasn't around until hundreds of years after Jesus died and resurrected. Instead, here's what they would do. Stay with me. Here's what they would do. They would be paraded to the father's house, and then here's all the family, and all of a sudden, you're looking at your grandma, and your nieces, and your nephews, and your friends, and they start, like, giving you the thumbs up and saying, go get them, tiger, or whatever they said back then, because they would parade you into the bridal chamber, and you would go consummate the marriage. You would get busy for the first time. So, I imagine there was probably just a little bit of, of anxiety and tension in this moment. Like you, you were just paraded before your family, and you're looking your grandma in the face, and now you're in this room with someone you may or may not know very well, and, and you're supposed to consummate the marriage. And to make matters more awkward, uh, to make matters more awkward, the bridal party would be in earshot of this moment. They might even have their ear up to the door listening, and they're waiting for the groom to shout out that the marriage has been consummated and everything went well, and when they got that news, they would tell everybody else, and the party would begin. And the party would last for seven days, where they would eat food and drink wine, and and they would party, and people would come and go, and it would be really hard to to think, how much food do I need, how much wine do I need, because this is a seven-day party. And then at the end of these seven days, the bride and the groom would come out of the wedding chamber. They would now be fully husband and wife, and the third C would begin, the celebration. It would be a grand marriage supper, and everyone would congratulate the new couple, and there would be a scene of just wonderful joy and dancing. And then finally, after this celebration, the new couple would leave, and they would take up residence in their husband's house. And so, all of this is kind of some of the cultural background of the Jewish courtship and wedding. And now I want to bring up just a few examples. There are so many examples. I want to bring up a few examples of how God is pursuing us as the groom and we are the bride and all of this imagery throughout scripture. So first off, uh, the first C, the, the, the covenant or the contract, the, there are covenants and contracts all over scripture, right? There's the Adamic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic Covenant, and then Jesus comes in and he brings in the new covenant. There's all of these covenants that that they 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 symbolize this contract between the two, but the one that most symbolizes it is the Mosaic covenant. When Moses goes up Mount Sinai and he gets, you know, the tablets for the Ten Commandments, and God keeps a copy and Moses has a copy. That most closely resembles this contract. And then Jesus comes along. And Jesus is the full embodiment. Uh, uh, He's fully man and fully God. And and Jesus is uh, the groom of the church who is the bride. And Jesus, he uses all of this groom-like language. Jesus, when he was here, he said things like, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And only the Father knows the day and the hour of which I will return. And then Jesus, he, he does stuff like take communion with his disciples. But he doesn't drink. The wine at communion to seal any sort of deal. Instead, Jesus, when he goes to the cross to pay the bride price, Jesus pays the punishment and the penalty for our sin that you and I deserve. Jesus paid it. That was the bride price. In Jesus, he drank the cup of wrath that God poured out on him. That was his drink. That was his wine that sealed this bride price, that sealed this deal, ushering in the new covenant, ushering in righteousness that we have in Jesus. Jesus did all of that. And so you and I, we are called right now to wait like a bride who is waiting with dignity, who who is waiting for the return of Jesus. And as we wait, we are to be set apart. We are called to adore him, and we're called to remember that he, Jesus, is our first love. And Jesus, one day, friends, he is going to come back to get us. And when Jesus comes back to get us on a white horse, there's going to be a trumpet that sounds. And there's going to be a party as Jesus brings his bride and ushers us into the new heavens and the new earth that he's prepared for us. And in his house, in the house of Jesus, in his father's house, there are many rooms. And there's going to be a wedding feast. And here's what it says in Revelation Chapter 19, verse 6. It says, The Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So we see here again in verse 8 that you and I are going to be clothed in righteousness. We're not who we used to be. We're not covered in sin and guilt and dirt and shame. No, we're covered in bright Pure righteousness. In this, this marriage story is the grand marriage marriage story in all of Scripture. In, in every in, every fairy tale that you've ever heard that ends with happily ever after was pointing towards this future reality. We all long for it in our heart for that day when we're brought home and there's a marriage supper, and it's the culmination of all of our hearts' dreams and longing. Is this? moment that we look forward to, whether we're married or not, we look for the return of Christ and the intimacy that we're going to get to have with him and how we adore him. And so with all of that in mind, with all of that background in mind, let's go back to our couple in the Song of Songs. Where are they in the three C's, the covenant, the consummation, and the celebration? They're right between, they're in in between the covenant and the consummation. They're in this season of waiting, and they're living in the now, but not yet. They've been promised a future, but they've not yet gotten to step into that reality. And that's exactly where we are with Christ right now. We're so thankful that he's paid the bride price, that he's drank the cup of wrath, but we long for the day when Christ is going to return to make everything new. And and so this moment of adoration, when, when you're waiting, for the consummation to happen is the moment uh, where the couple, uh, let me read verse four again. Verse four, the woman, she said, take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. And this is likely the moment where adoration is the highest, right? And likewise, not only in marriage, but in our relationship with Christ, when we're longing for his return, our adoration is highest. And so may we see, If you are married, may you see your spouse in the greater narrative of God's story. That that our marriage is all about pointing our spouse towards Christ and his kingdom and how he is going to make everything new. And may we remember that Jesus is our first love. And if we're married, our spouse is called to be our first ministry. May we run towards Jesus together, giving him our adoration. And when we put Christ first, and when we love our spouse uh, as our first ministry, everything else kind of flows out of there in its correct order. And so this new sermon series we're in is called Union. And union is the action or fact of being joined together and becoming one. And if you've said yes to Jesus, then you've been united with him in his death and in his resurrection. And we want you—our hope is that during this sermon series that you would— Take more steps uh, closer that you would draw closer in union with Him and with your spouse. And if you're in this room and you haven't given your life to Jesus, then I know this is super corny. Then we then we hope that you'll say yes to His marriage proposal, to His bride price that He's paid for you. We would love for you uh, to come up and get prayer and give your life to Jesus, or you can do that on your own. We invite you to that. I want to invite the band out. Um, here's where we're headed in the next couple of weeks. Next week, week two, Beth Guckenberger is going to be speaking on sexual intimacy from the female perspective. And then on week four, uh, at Loveland campus, it'll be David Smith, Westchester campus, it'll be James Lenhoff. On week four, we're going to be speaking on sexual intimacy from the male perspective. And both of these are going to be so valuable, so important, we hope you're here. And then the other weeks are going to be dispersed, uh, more focusing on our pursuit and adoration of God. But we're going to do both of those things in in all of the weeks. We're going to try to have a correct uh, balance. But then one more thing I wanted to mention. Because this is such a weighty topic, because there's so much pressure around this topic, so much guilt around this topic of sexual intimacy, we wanted to give you some resources. And so you'll see on the screen right now some dates at our Loveland campus, or one date, and then one date at our Westchester campus. And we're going to have a panel interview on these days where, where we have some people up on the stage who are just sharing their story. We're gonna have some people in in leadership at our church who are open and honest about some of the sexual brokenness or some of the shame that they've experienced in the midst of marriage. We're also on that panel going to have licensed professional counselors who, who specialize in this area and are ready to give us resources. So we hope you'll come out to that I know my Couples Pathway group is is excited about attending that, and so please join that if you so desire. And uh, right now, we're going to respond in worship. I would love to invite up Susanna at Westchester or Amy at Loveland.